Hear the word of the Lord. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. For so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct, since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, soldier, and peace be with you. It's good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we'll get the obvious out of the way again. Happy Father's Day. Way to go, dads. Uh, way to go, dads. Uh, I'm fortunate. My dad goes to church here, uh, which is incredible and also weird and intimidating and scary and grateful. Uh, if you don't know my dad, I strongly encourage you to seek him out. He's good at everything, just be warned. Um, I've never felt so comfortable in someone's shadow, and uh, it's amazing. His life, when he tells me stories about his life, it's hard to believe it's real. So it's a real privilege, I feel like, to have him here, and he's an amazing man. So if you're fortunate enough to be friends with him, you know that. I encourage you to seek him out and find him. So on the front end, uh, we didn't plan for the sermon to land on Father's Day. So if you're coming and you're like, man, we're going to get this, like, dads are so awesome sermon, this is not it. Um, and I'm really sorry. We're not beating up on dads, but I wish it was this, like, dad softball. But here we are in Esther chapter 3, which is a bit of a madhouse. Um, I had, I stopped counting at six people after the first service that came up to me and said some version of, I never learned that from VeggieTales. Uh, so... <laughs> If your understanding of the book of Esther is shaped by veggie tales, put in your metaphorical seatbelt, you'll learn something today. Uh, and I apologize for that. There will be, uh, there'll be, I would say, a dash of hope at the end. Not much hope, okay? Um, I saw a poster one time that said it's only darkest right before it goes pitch black, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so there's a mm, sprinkle of hope I'll give you at the end. Uh, so one of, the, one of the big takeaways I've had, uh, or that maybe I've thought about in light of this chapter that we're about to talk through is, as far as I can tell, this is in my own heart, but I think this is true of everybody, uh, no one by nature wants to trust God. Uh, maybe confessionally, we have this idea, if there is a God who's big and powerful and omnipotent and omni everything, then we should listen to him. But functionally, no, no one is really all that excited about letting the reins go of their life. And we could talk about this theologically or doctrinally, but I would just appeal to your own life and experience. You know this about you. Something happened this last week that either you were aware of doing, that you were going to do it beforehand and you knew you shouldn't and had that kind of internal wrestling, felt bad while you were doing it, and then felt guilty that you did it afterwards, or something happened and it was almost... Uh, it was almost like it just exploded out of you and then you felt bad about it. It could be something really big, could be something insignificant, but there was somewhere this week where you kind of took back the reins of your life from God. 
And again, it, it doesn't have to be all that significant. I, I didn't think about that this till this morning, but uh, in my family, we did Father's Day yesterday. Sunday's a weird day. If you know me, usually after church, I go somewhere and cry. Or if you like go up to Lapping Park and you see me walking through the woods like this, on a, like that's me reevaluating every decision I've made in life. Sundays are bad days, okay, if you're a preacher. Sundays are just hard days, Sunday afternoon. So we celebrated Father's Day on Saturday. Beautiful day. Presents. My wife got me this fancy shirt off Poshmark, so we weren't the fool that spent all that money. So I got my cool new Father's Day shirt on that I really wanted that's stretchy and breathable. I'm very excited about it. We had a good meal. I ate Mexican food for the first time in a long time, and it made me... I paid for it, but <laughs> it was delicious. You know, had a great day. Great day. And I'm laying in, in bed. My wife's got her four-month-old. I've got the five-year-old and the four-year-old wrapped around me, and we're, we're reading books and... It's just this, like, oh, it's so beautiful. Life is so good. I'm so thankful. And some of you know my five-year-old. He's on or he's off, right? He's awake or he's asleep. He, he doesn't have this, like, middle ground. We're just hanging out. And sometimes the energy has to go somewhere, right? Even when it's late at night. So we're laying in bed reading Lama Lama Loves to Read. It's a late new addition to the Lama Lama series. And we get to Lama Lama Loves His Letters. And something... All this gratitude for Father's Day and love welled up in my five-year-old, and as I'm llama llamaing, he just ah, and bit me on the shoulder, just out of nowhere, <laughs> bit me. I, and they do this kind of stuff, and that's, I, that's what he does. And he bit me, and I felt felt it well up in me. And I looked at him and I said, "What are you doing?" <laughs> and his response was, he covered his face. He put pillows on top of himself, started crying, and said, I'm so sorry, I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. You know, and, th- and then as a dad, you're like, oh, you know? Like, I shamed and scared my five-year-old, and I felt terrible about it. Now, and th- you know, so then Father's Day ends with dad crying in bed, being like, forgive me, buddy, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he's like, it's okay, dad, it's okay. Um, uh, so, you know, theologically, I guess, uh, don't yell at your kids. Dad, don't yell at your kids. Don't provoke your children to anger. Um, there's very few instances where I think a, a human being should shout anyway, but in particular, in anger uh, towards your kids. And you know that's wrong, and that you shouldn't do that, but then you get bit. Then something happens. And some of you are laughing because you're like, that's kind of understandable. I get why you would do that, right? It's not necessarily I was shaking my fist at God. Sometimes we are. Sometimes you get bit. And, and you do something that you wish you shouldn't do, that you know you shouldn't do, that there's Bible verses that say you shouldn't do, and you did it anyway. Somewhere in you, there are parts of you that don't trust God, even when it's understandable for why you wouldn't. You know, we're blessed at this church to have people with gray hair. And if you're in your your 30s, in the long years, the hard years where responsibilities are heavy and the days are long, like we need those people to tell us of the rich blessings of obedience, of what happens when you trust God over the long haul and the ways you see him show up and follow through over and over again. But then for so many of us, we hear those stories, or maybe you leave here on fire for God after Sunday, or man, the music was really on it, and the preacher really fed me, or whatever, and you get all fired up leaving Sunday, and then the rubber meets the road, and you've got decisions to make. And we're not so sure anymore. 
Most of the time when we talk about obedience in our church, we talk about uh, the ways that it leads to life, which is a biblical way of doing it. Pleasures, O Lord, are at your right hands forevermore. All of your laws, O Lord, lead to life. Uh, your word is more precious to me than honey. You know, like, that's good to think it, life will go better for you if you listen and obey to God, okay? Um, life will go better for you. But it's also biblical and good to occasionally consider the consequences of long-term disobedience, of living in that functional mistrust of God. People, uh, you know, for, I don't know, 1,500 years or so would call the practice of doing this aversion meditation. So you look at the thing that you're kind of feeling like you want to do, and you think about the consequences if you go down that road as a way to convince you not to go down that road. We get a picture in Esther 3 of the slippery slope of pride. There's all kinds of ways to define pride. A simple one, I think, is a functional mistrust of God. I don't know that maybe some of you like, have had bombs dropped in the last couple of months or something, and you're saying, like, I'm not sure if I trust you, God. If, you're, if you regularly come to church, you're probably not outright saying, I don't trust God, and I live in an open defiance of him. I'm not saying that it's always that black and white. It's very complicated, and as we'll see, there are often understandable reasons that we're moved to self-absorption and even self-reliance. But just because something is understandable, just because something feels natural, does not mean that it is good, true, or beautiful. That's a tough lesson for many of us, so I'm going to say it again a little more slowly. Just because it's understandable or just because it feels natural does not mean that it is good, true, or beautiful. So, we're going to look at chapter 3 of Esther, and in particular, three of our main characters. Again, Esther, her cousin-slash-guardian Mordecai, and a new character named Haman. And what we'll see is that self-reliance is spiritual defiance, and the road to life is paved with strife. To put it another way, there's a spiritual reality when you keep taking the reins back, and, and once you try to make that turn away from self-reliance, that won't mean your life gets easier. So, a bit of a recap so far. Mordecai, this guy Mordecai is Esther's cousin, and he adopts her after her parents pass away. We don't know how old she was, um, but he becomes kind of a father figure to her. And we learned last week that her name, her given name, is Hadassah. That's a Jewish name. Her cousin, Mordecai, he has taken a Persian name, named after the god Marduk. So these two have chosen to stay in exile in Persia, even though they could have gone home. After these few weeks in Esther, we're going to look at the book of Daniel, which precedes Esther, and we'll learn about what happened. How, why were the Jews taken into captivity in Persia, and then which king came and sent them home? But you need to know that they could have gone back home to Jerusalem with all of their Jewish people, but they chose to stay there. Mordecai chooses to take on a Persian name, which honors a pagan god. He convinces Esther to change her name away from a Jewish name that honors God and into a pagan name, and they decide to hide their Jewish faith. Last week, Travis talked to about uh, some of the circumstances going on here that lead us to the story of Esther. We learn of King Xerxes, who spent a few weeks drinking, 
Um, and, I, you know, on the book table, we have a book called Faith Among the Faithless, which will do a great job of fleshing out the story, giving some texture to it. Uh, again, it'll disrupt your VeggieTales version of the stories. But you've got to see King Xerxes as throwing these wild, rowdy parties. And they're drinking to the point where they decide that Xerxes should bring his wife out in a crown. Some people say it was, he ordered her to come out only in a crown and dance in front of the friend, his friends. So think about you and your buddies have drank too much and you get your wife out and say, hey, come dance for me and my buddies. I want to show you off. Like, that's messed up. That's weird. It's inappropriate. Uh, and Vashti, like a good, sensible woman, though she herself was a monster too. She did horrific things. There's no easy sinner or saint in this story. Uh, she did horrific things to people. But good on her for looking at an abusive husband and saying, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, you may think that Xerxes would just sober up the next morning. You know, he's got all the money in the world at this point, and he could have bought her a white Lexus with a ribbon on it and said, baby, I'm sorry. Shouldn't have done that to you. Forgive me. It won't happen again. Right? Like, that's what a reasonable person would do. Apologize and make up for it. Instead, he exiles her, throws her out of the kingdom, and says, go deal with it. Wakes up sober the next morning, and he's sad. He misses her. Again, a reasonable person might call her and say, hey, baby, I'm sorry. She couldn't have gotten far at that point. She might have still been living in the palace for all we know. Instead of doing what a reasonable person would do, his advisors come to Xerxes, and they say, hey, man, here's what you could do. You could get all of the virgins in the empire together, and you sleep with them until you find the one that you like and marry that one. Systemic rape, sex trafficking, this is the king's goal or king's plan for dealing with his grief. This is madness. This is a power-hungry, horrific human being. What makes me more uncomfortable about this is when this plan comes out and basically says, if you're a virgin, come to the palace. And Mordecai looks at his cousin slash daughter and says, do you know how beautiful you are? I bet the king would really like you. You should go for it. He works his connections, gets her in. Esther goes along with it, says that she makes it her aim to please the king. So these are two of our main characters, and this should make all of us very uncomfortable. They're compromised nationally, spiritually, morally. They're not all bad, but they're certainly not all good. And it's a picture of what can happen when we take matters into our own hands. Now, I grant you, what I'm about to suggest is a bit speculative, but I think it's pretty normal for how human beings work. What do you think that perhaps they were thinking these years leading up to where we are in chapter 3? They can go home, but they've been living here for so long, and who knows what home is going to be like? I mean, who knows what shape Jerusalem is in? And you know those people are going to come and just invade. It's only a matter of time. The neighborhood's just not safe. It'd probably be better for us if we stayed here. I get that. Seems totally reasonable. So they decide to stay. You know, Esther, I'm sorry, Hadassah, at the time, staying here could be awkward with these names because people will know we're Jewish. 
So why don't, it'll just go easier for us if we change our names. It makes sense. Let's do it. You know, they don't like Jewish people. Maybe we, it could just be a private faith for us. Like, let's just practice this inside our home so people don't have to know. Okay. Gosh, life is hard. You know, the king is looking for a new wife, and it looks kind of weird. You might have to sleep with him, but gosh, think about how much better life would be once you're in the palace, okay? I'm not suggesting any of these were easy decisions or obvious decisions, but we have to see this descent into madness that happens as little compromises are happening along the way. When you trust your own schemes, when you rely on your own strength, it creates a slippery slope of increasingly poor decisions. Your vision will get clouded. And what seemed crazy to you a short while ago will seem totally normal. Have you ever done that? Have you ever woken up one day after doing something, making some choice, and you wonder, how did I get here? Slow, small compromises over time. And at its core, there is a rejection of God's design, a functional refusal to trust Him. Maybe you're not saying that with your mouth, but in the way you're living and carrying out your life is functionally revealing that you don't think God knows best. I know what God said, but life is hard. I'll just fudge it a little bit here. It'll be okay. I'm just going to cut this corner a little bit. It's not strictly true, just a little bit this way. I know I shouldn't have said it that, but I'll just... And we make these little turns. And it can lead to places... I I don't know if you remember this from Travis last week, but you know God's not mentioned in the book of Esther? We see these things happening, and he just seems totally absent. These are people taking matters into their own hands, and they have the pain to show for it. So this brings us to a new character named Haman. Verse 1. Sometime later, we don't know how much long or how much later this is, but we know Esther is married to Xerxes at this point, which functionally means she lives in a harem, she lives in a certain room of the palace, and she can only come to see him when he summons her. Otherwise, he might kill her. So she hangs out, taking baths, wearing perfume, doing all of her products to make sure she stays perfect for the king and just waits on him to summon her. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadetha, whatever, and the Agagite over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. He's hand of the king. He's the boss. He's a big deal, and he thinks he's a big deal. How do you know this? Well, look at the arrangement that they have. This is what Haman's daily life looked like. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. Um, It's easy to dog this guy. But I just want you to put yourself in his shoes for a second. How would it feel to walk to work and everyone bows before you at work? I think initially it would be weird. But how might that shape your soul over time? Wherever you walk, people bow down. You'd be like, that's right. I am pretty good at my job. Appreciate you bowing. That's right. Might you become self-reliant? Might you become proud? I get it. He thinks he's a big deal, expects everybody to treat him like that, but there's a problem. Some time has passed, we learn, and something has shifted in Mordecai. We don't know what exactly, and we don't know why, 
but we know he's suddenly comfortable being Jewish. So we see in verse 2, but Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Y'all have that guy at work that bothers you. Um, the one guy that's just weird or is aggravating or does the thing you don't like, the guy that you see at the water cooler that you're like, gosh, here he is, he's so chatty, I just want a drink, but if I talk to him, he's going to talk to me for 40 minutes or, or whatever. So imagine how much worse it is for Haman, where he's used to everybody bowing before him, and then as he's just walking around outside and bowing, everyone, your worshipfulness, oh yes, your magic, oh yes, Haman, and there's Morty over there refusing to bow down. It says that his advisors kept getting like, Mordecai, what's your deal? Why won't, you, why won't you bow? And all we know is that Mordecai said, I'm Jewish. All of a sudden, he's refusing to treat Xerxes or his officials like a king. And they're having a meeting one day, Haman and his officials. And he's upset about Mordecai refusing to bow. And one of his officials says, well, you know, Haman, he's Jewish. And there it is. Haman gets to have an answer for why he hates Mordecai. And Haman, so proud, so used to being groveled before, takes action. Look at this madness in verse 6. He'd learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. Who was his issue with? Who did Haman have a problem with? Mordecai, one guy who was doing something he didn't like, and he was so wound up in his own world and his own sense of self-importance that it wasn't enough just to deal with it with Mordecai. Everyone who's like you will be killed, not in the city, not in the country, in the entire empire. You see what a disproportionate response is happening here. He even sets a specific date recorded for us here in Esther about when this would happen. This is the day all of the Jewish people will be exterminated. Men, women, children, babies. The king okays it. They write it up and they send it out. This is what's going to happen. Because one man wouldn't bow. Orders written, signed, and spread through the empire. And what do Haman and mighty King Xerxes do once this letter goes out? It's amazing. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. Esther starts with them just drinking and partying. They, this would be like the president saying, I'm going to drop a nuclear bomb on Indianapolis, and then walking away in golf cleats with a case of bud to go play golf. What? You're just going to go play after doing something like this? They're out there drinking while an entire city, if not the empire, falls into confusion. The big shots get drunk. That's Esther chapter 3. So what do we learn? Um, one of the big lessons that I want us to see and embrace as a people is that our daily life shapes our whole life. So these, our daily decisions are shaping who we are as humans. Um, again, I'm going to speculate a little bit here, but I think it's fair. When Xerxes was seven, I don't think he sat down and said, Daddy, when, when I'm king, I'm going to be a rapist. 
when Haman was in school, I don't think he ever said, Daddy or teacher, when I have power, I'm going to commit genocide. I don't think Esther, when she was a little girl, said, I hope I grow up to live as a sex slave in a king's harem. I don't think Mordecai said, when I get older, I want to sex traffic my cousin. Right? Like, do you see how the, their present situations that they are facing and living in here that are, I just would be shocked if it was anywhere on their radar. This is not how they thought things would go. And yet, this is where they all ended up. This is a picture of the slippery slope of self-reliance. These people got to this point through small daily decisions to compromise. The bad night is never just a result of a bad night. There's small choices and decisions made along the way. If you find yourself in a position doing something crazy that makes no sense to you, there were small daily decisions that led you there. It's, it's like getting into a cold pool. You do dumb, and at first it's kind of cold, and then you get used to it, so you can do dumber and dumber and dumber. And eventually you'll get somewhere that is absolutely crazy. Many of us make thoughtless daily decisions about what we watch on TV, about the food we eat, about the lies we tell. We know what God would have us do, but we say no. And we think because it seems so insignificant today that the effects are harmless. Human beings are, are developmental creatures, which means we are shaped over time. Most of us have some version of dreaming that we're the hero. Right? We, or, or we'll go to Esther chapter 4 and hear about, for such a time as this. That's, like one, that's the quote from the book of Esther. And, and we're, we'll look at that. But we dream of being in this like great heroic pivotal moment. But no one becomes a hero in the moment. It's the daily decision to trust God's design that shapes us. This is what Jesus was teaching us in the Beatitudes through the Sermon on the Mount. Small choices made over time reshape who we are. Your daily life is shaping your whole life. The, the daily ways you spend money, what you watch, what you read, who you spend time with, this is shaping not simply what you do, but who you are, who you love, who you trust. And the daily refusal to trust God with the details of our lives will lead us to destruction. It's, and more than that, it's spiritual defiance. It's functionally saying, you know best. And these characters here show us where that leads us. And I'm just guessing some of you know the cost of trusting yourself of refusing to obey God long-term. You know the cost. You know the destruction it's brought in your life. And just for the sake of sobriety, I need to warn you about what can happen when you make the turn, or when you decide to choose to trust God. So Mordecai suddenly shifts. He's now okay with being labeled a Jew, which means he won't bow, he won't worship Haman or Xerxes. And the text tells us he did this day after day wasn't a moment of courage. He didn't read an inspiring Bible message and go and like, I'm not bowing today. It was day after day after day. And there's part of me that wants to read that and be like, way to go, Mordecai. Stick it to the man. You know, like, be righteous. Be a good man. Quit compromising. But 
as we'll see in the next chapter, his refusal to bow leads to greater faith for Esther too. It's a beautiful biblical principle that health begets health. His daily practice shaped his whole life, and you need to see what it cost him. His refusal to bow, his decision to begin trusting God threw the entire empire into chaos. It put the lives of all of his countrymen literally on the line. This is an invitation to sobriety. If you've been walking the road of pride for years, once you make the turn back to trust, you'll likely have many weeds that need cutting down. If you've been refusing to face what you need to face, if you've been refusing to trust God for years, talk to someone who's been an alcoholic for 20 years, and they decide to get sober, and almost always it's way more difficult before it gets better. You live in rebellion and disobedience, and you try to turn it around, there will be messes that need to be cleaned up. So the road back to life will often be filled with strife, facing the consequences of all those years of defiance. It's just the way it is. I, you can't set your house on fire and then be mad it gets hot, you know? That's the reality. It's what you've done. So Mordecai turns and the empire descends into chaos. And as far as I can tell, that's the story for today. So, two words of hope. I'm not going to spoil the story for you about what happens. If you've never heard Esther before, never read it, you can come back next week. Or if you're very curious how this all works out, you can read it in your Bible. It's in every Bible. But, with all the heaviness we feel and the great consequences that we're seeing, I just want to remind you, Esther is in the Bible. This book made it into the Bible. These characters are in the Bible. The church are, there's many adults in a room. Someone in here is convinced that God couldn't use someone like you. And maybe you've, been comp maybe you've compromised for too long. You've been proud for too long. Superficially, the book of Esther, sermons like this should make us ask, what kind of people does God use? Because these don't seem like the superheroes that I was expecting. But I, th I think more personally, beyond that question, Esther will reassure us, it does reassure us, that God could use someone even like me. God could use someone even like you. The grace of God in Esther, it, it means something like this. No one is edited out of God's story. No one is too far gone. Thanks be to God. Second word of hope. We follow one who lived a life of daily small obedience. 30 years of Jesus' life are shrouded in mystery. We know about his birth. We know about a family trip he took around 10 or 12. And that's about it. Sometimes that gets people really confused or worried. And the reason that we don't have more about those 30 years is because they were boring, tedious, difficult days like most of us have the first 30 years of our life. What do you do when you're 24? Here's what the biography of Jesus at 24 would look like. Woke up at sunrise, ate oatmeal for breakfast, went to work, built benches for nine hours, came home, had dinner, went to bed. Tuesday, woke up at sunrise, ate oatmeal, and went and built doors for nine hours, 
came home, went to bed. Wednesday, woke up. So, don't make me do it again, right? Like, he was going to work, he was living, and he was doing what you do the first 30 years of your life. He knows the importance of daily obedience, and he lived it. And we know the one, we know one who experienced the pain that comes when we pursue wholeheartedness, but when we pursue an honest life before God and one another, when we pursue righteousness in a life of trust. Pain, betrayal, rejection, even physical pain. In Mordecai, we see that one man's obedience can throw an entire empire into chaos. And in Christ, we see that one man's obedience can also bring life to an entire world. In Christ, we receive the promise that pain does not finish our stories, that the promise that obedience does not go unrewarded, the promise that our crucifixions always lead to resurrections. So we remember the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. He thanked God for it. He broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. Whenever you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Fundamentally, this is an invitation to come and trust God, to see what Jesus has done for us and to come to him. First thing I said to you this morning is that no one by nature wants to trust God. And I think that's true. But I want you to look at your life and consider, do you not know what that has cost you? And can you look through your story and see the pain that has come and that you've brought to others for refusing to trust God? Can you see what it has cost you to take matters into your own hands? And maybe that can be all the reason you need to turn and to come home and to trust God. Look to the cross. Look to the resurrection. Turn from your self-reliance. Come and trust Jesus. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward, or there'll be stations in the back. You can rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. A wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, and will have gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, uh, let's come remember our hope together. Let's pray.